Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. We made it through 2020. My goodness, that feels like a thing to celebrate. And on this, our final episode of a year that many of us would like to forget we're going to force you to remember. No, uh, there's so many things that we are proud of in this last year as a part of this podcast. And so as a treat for every one of you, we're going to take you through some of our favorite memories from this, the Rise Together podcast in this past year. As much as this year may not have turned out the way that many of us thought that it might, I sincerely hope that you have taken something good out of some of the hard, some of the bad that has shown up. I'm excited about all the conversations we'll get to have in 2021. The guest lineup is ridiculous. And as we continue to push into conversations with people that may afford us a little bit of a glimpse into a little bit of a different way of doing life, my hope is that we will continue to have that empathy bridge afford us an opportunity of putting ourselves in someone else's shoes for the opportunity to soften the rough edges of our heart and think a little bit differently about how we collectively are all in this together. Happy New Year, everybody. Enjoy our clip show, and we'll see you in the new year. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us? think like us, or live like us. I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together.
The thing that ended up coming up that was the most important, biggest revelation for me in this experience and in determining what happens for me in 2020 was a revelation in my writing of the idea of if then. If I want this, then I have to do these things in order to have that, which is such a, it's a ridiculously simple concept. But in the process of writing these words and in, in, in doing this, this work, I'm asking myself a set of questions of what I want to focus on, of who I'd like to be, the kind of identity I'd like to step into and how I'd like to show up in 2020. So I went down this path through a variety of different lenses of who, Dave, do you actually want to be? And how, if you actually want to be them, would you need to show up for these relationships and for yourself so that you could uh, create consistency in the actions that you take to support the language you use around who you say you want to be? So I'm going to start there. The first big breakthrough that I had as I'm sitting out in nature and I'm having my technology-free existential exploration into who the heck I say I want to be, the first things I started writing down were interestingly observations of, of times where I was unhappy, not actually living into the characteristics of who I'd broadcast myself to want to be. That sounded confusing, but it, you know, I'm, I'm telling people that I wanna be a great leader, but I know in the privacy of my own head when I'm by myself at the end of a day that I haven't shown up as well as I could have and that dissonance, that incongruence between my actions and my stated objectives created some space and in that space, frustration, shame, disappointment, regret, whatever, whatever, you, wanna, whatever you wanna call it, but the, the distance, the dissonance, the incongruence between who I'd suggest that I was interested in being and who I'd shown up as was creating an imbalance. So as I, as I took the, okay, I know I don't wanna do that, I had to ask the question of then what do I want to do? And what I wanna do is create harmony, create consistency, create con congruence between what I proclaim to be my mission in this year ahead and the actions required to attain that mission. And here's where I got the clarity and it was like the gift of gifts. The clarity was if I say I want an exceptional relationship, then I need to do these very specific things to actually be true to what I'm suggesting. If uh, having a great life, having a, a, a personal you know, dialogue inside of your head that when you are by yourself makes you feel proud and happy and not you know, any kind of regret or shame, if those things were easy, everybody would have them. But having the life that many others don't requires doing things that many others won't. Right? If you can't handle the conditions of the then, you don't get the benefit of the if. 
The bottom line ends up being, right? Whatever you're suggesting, here we are, beginning of the year, year is fresh, it's clean, and you, man, the, the world is your oyster. You can go and do and be anything. Anything so long as there's an appreciation that if you say you want that thing, it comes with a certain amount of work that you'll have to commit to as well. I was able to have a conversation with Katherine Schwarzenegger-Pratt, who has just recently become a New York Times bestseller for a book that she's written called The Gift of Forgiveness. Man, forgiveness. It is a complicated topic, and Katherine is someone who has approached this topic with extraordinary grace. She has found 22 people who have the most incredible stories of what I would argue are unforgivable in many, many instances, stories that they chose to forgive anyway. They found a way to, with the perspective of how forgiveness could be an attempt to take back the power in unforgivable situations, offer forgiveness, and the way that she has walked through these stories, the way that we in this conversation walk through the complicated nature of forgiveness will challenge you to think differently about how forgiveness is all about perspective. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i'm struck by all of these stories having complete different processes in terms of how people get to their place of forgiveness. And sometimes it is this ongoing, it will never ever be a completely closed loop in that they are continuing to process, uh, whether it's grief or continuing to process the anger that will come up, but then choosing to come back to a place of forgiveness. Um, Did you suspect when you came into the interviewing process that there would have been more consistency with the way that people process forgiveness? Or did you, did you, I don't, I I was surprised. I thought, oh, there's going to be a handful of ways that people tend to process and the stories to a story were completely and wholly unique. It's funny because when I first started um, 
doing this book, I would, I would also finish most of my interviews asking people for like three quick tips on, uh, on practicing forgiveness with the idea that, you know, possibly when I put all these stories together in the writing process, that I could find common threads and that I could, you know, give readers and people who are interested in this book and in interested in the topic of forgiveness, you know, these are three bullet points that people who are, have been able to practice forgiveness, you know, can give you to better practice forgiveness in your life. And the reality of what I quickly learned was that each story is so unique and also every single person's way of understanding forgiveness, practicing it, not practicing it, struggling with it, uh, living with it is so different that there were no, you know, common threads. And so when people are saying, which, you know, we live in a society where people want to know here are five steps to, um, you know, to getting over something, or here are five steps to losing weight, or here are five steps to your best self. Those you know, quick fixes with everything. People want to know what are the quick fixes with forgiveness. And what I <laughs> tell people is, unfortunately, there are no quick fixes to forgiveness. I think the number one most important thing is to be open to the idea of forgiveness because so many people that I would talk to in my life and just when I was doing this book are so closed off to the idea of forgiveness. And they say, you know, what happened to me was unforgivable. You know, I'm never doing that. I'm never going to get over that, et cetera. So there's like that kind of vibe. And then there's people who are, you know, really easily forgiveness comes to them. And, you know, it's no matter what comes to them, they can get to a place of forgiveness pretty quickly. And, you know, that's what they are good at. And then there are some people like myself who take every forgiveness opportunity as it comes. And I don't have an exact way that I practice forgiveness because some situations I can say, okay, I can deal with that process it and move forward. Other situations take me years. Some situations I'm still struggling with. And, and I think for me, while it's a, uh, you know, kind of nerve wracking or daunting idea that there is no right or wrong way to practice forgiveness. It also is an exciting way to look at it because I think so many people are like, well, am I doing it the wrong way? Am I, what's the right way to practice? You always want to get, you know, some people, you know, especially like myself, I'm like, is this right? Am I doing this right? Is this, is the correct? And the, the beautiful thing in this book is that you'll realize is that there, as you were saying, there is no one way to practice forgiveness. Some of the people in this book practice it in an instant and other people took 30 years and some people, you know, are still struggling with it. And, um, and so I think it was, that was important to me is to have like a good group of people who had all different types of forgiveness journeys. And I think it speaks to how different we all handle forgiveness when it comes into our lives or the opportunity to forgive, we all, you know, we all confront it in a different way or welcome it or not welcome it in a different way. So it, that was important to me to have that, but I think it's, you know, for, for people who want, you know, to cut to the chase and get a quick, (laughs) a quick run through on how to, how to forgive it's uh, it's disappointing to them because there isn't, 
you know, I would say read the book and read people's stories and, and listen and be open to it as the biggest piece of advice. But other than that, it's really up to you how you choose to handle it. And also to know that if you decide to forgive in this instant right today, that doesn't mean that you're never going to have trigger moments where you get upset about the situation moving forward, as you see in the book, that every single person in this book is open to the idea of like, yes, I decided 20 years ago to forgive that person. Does that mean that I'm never triggered to feel anger or sadness or hurt or devastation or, or rage? No, I still feel those feelings and I allow myself to feel them. I don't shut them away or shut them out. I allow myself to feel them and then I bring myself back to living in a place of forgiveness. So that also, I think, makes forgiveness less intimidating. It is uh, an impossibly difficult thing at times to fully get our arms around what's happening, how we got here, what systems and power structures exist to afford it. And uh, we're going to push into it because of one, it being important and two, it being the thing that's necessary for us to create the kind of progress and activism inside of anti-racism to actually afford a path forward. We are so fortunate. I'm so grateful that we have a guest today who is an expert inside of this field. Dr. Ed Barron is a diversity and leadership consultant. He's an executive coach. He's an accomplished speaker. He's got 30 plus years of having developed his expertise in small nonprofits, in large multinational corporations. He has been working inside of the diversity and leadership space for a very, very long time and is well known for conducting content-specific workshops dealing with all aspects of this conversation, a, a workshop that in fact he's given not once but twice to the people on our team. He's the chair of the Department of Leadership and Organizational Psychology at Azusa Pacific University, and his teaching specialties include systems and strategic planning for leaders, organizational implications of diversity, and leaders as agent of change. He is a good man. He is a smart man, and he happens to be a friend of mine and our family. What's interesting is anyone who's had any formal education, anyone who considers themselves, you know, smart in some kind of way may believe that they have a pretty good handle on all the things that have happened that have led to the state of the world and the situation that we find ourselves inside of. But the first day of work was really looking backward at how we got here. And I remember on that first day, you said, you can't effectively interpret content without setting appropriate context. And if you're operating, right, if you are someone who believes themselves to understand all of the ways that things have worked or reading history books that may have been in fact written with certain bias in how certain stories were told, your belief in context or that you have a handle on context is compromised in a way that will not allow you to interpret the content. So talk us through a little bit of how that first day, that work of trying to actually educate us, but ultimately send us on a mission of furthering our education of understanding what led us here is such an important foundation for anyone who wants to try and do any kind of anti-racist work down the road. Absolutely. And thank you for uh, leveraging uh, that 
that sort of framework of it's virtually impossible to get content right, absorb it without understanding what formed that, right, which is context. And so uh, imagine, you know, for the listener trying to squeeze 400 years of history into about an hour and a half, right? It's, it's yeoman's work to say the least. And so that's why we want you to continue. But the idea of creating these timelines and what we do is we try to, we try to walk through specific times in history that are blocked by certain events, 1492, when we all believe that Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered, quote, the United States of America, you know, up until the early 1700s when chattel slavery, right, the trading of human lives for profit uh, became uh, sort of exploded on the U.S. Uh, in, in the colonies. And um, three more sections of time after that. And the idea being is, can we identify in these times things that happened that were uh, considered to be racist? And we'll, we'll get to kind of a good interpretation of racist and racism a bit later. But suffice it to say, those things that were racist in our country and those things that were anti-racist or resistant to racism. And most of us can't put a darn thing on that timeline because our history didn't teach us that, right? I, I've worked with several clients and I, I, I typically would ask them, how many of you have ever taken a black histories course in, in, in college or maybe even high school and usually no hands go up? And then I say, well, how many have taken a white history course in either college or, and no hands go up? I said, well, every hand in the room should come up because the history that we learn, quite frankly, is written from a white, dominant, supremic narrative. It just is. Doesn't mean it was mean-spirited or mean-intended. It just means that the victor writes history, right? And people of color have not been in the position of being, quote, the victor, having power. And so walking through that, and, and you know, we invite you, okay, this is not a test, right? <laughs> so it's not a pass or fail. Uh, take out your cell phones, get onto your favorite search engine, and Google what happened in these years and then populate that. And you start to see the light come on when people begin to write these events down and, and realizing that there was a lot going on that we never heard about. And so we walk all the way up into the 1960s uh, or 1970s. And by the time we're populating these timelines, you start to see people realize that, okay, we're dealing with the historic narrative that now we're able to take a George Floyd and place in that context and understand why the revolution is still going on. How is this movement from the context of history playing out differently than say the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s or you know anything that may have existed at any point in time? This feels different. Why do you, do you think it's different? And, and if it is, why do you think it's different? I think actually, Dave, I think it's a lot like the civil rights movement of the 60s, and I'll tell you why. The participation across racial lines in this particular movement is staggering. The worldwide participation in this movement is staggering. And so what we saw with the civil rights movement was um, the, the, the luminaries, the leaders of the civil rights movement knew that it had to be more than a black people's movement. It had to be joined with conscious, um, courageous uh, white participants. They knew that. And so what happened as a result of the third, uh, uh, the second trek over the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, in Selma, Alabama, was that Bloody Sunday was televised. And so what happened is the, is the, the, the 
the reality of the struggle came into homes and people had to decide, what do we do with this now? Right? Similarly, with this movement, of course, television and the news cycle has been around now for decades, but I think what makes this different, honestly, and sociologists have been looking at this as well as psychologists, is the COVID-19 pandemic. In part, Dave, because we don't have our detractors and we don't have our meditators. We can't turn the NFL on or the NBA, or, and, and I'm not faulting those, but typically when there's tragedy in the US, what do we do? The, the, the show must go on, the games must resume because America needs to remember that it's America. We don't have those things now. So we are inundated like they were in the 60s with the Evan Pettis Bridge Bloody Sunday incident. We're seeing these things and we're recognizing we can't get away from it. I think people at their core, Dave, are empathetic. I think people want to, they're justice oriented, right? The, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it always bends towards justice, so said Dr. Martin Luther King. That's our, that's our, our birthright is justice. And so I think we're, we're having a combination of things, um, a proliferation of unfortunate murders, the opportunity to sit in that for long periods of time without distraction, the modeling of what resistance and protest now looks like, and then having to ask ourselves, see, it's harder, it's harder to stay in neutral. It's harder to stay inactive when your consciousness is pricked and you see examples of people moving. Now it's time for you to determine what do I do with that? And we're seeing people say, not on my watch. Today, we welcome Rosemary Ketchum. Rosemary has been a community organizer in Wheeling, West Virginia for about a decade. Now, she's the state's first openly transgender elected official. As the associate director of the city's local drop-in center for the National Alliance for Mental Illness, she worked with community members experiencing poverty, homelessness, and mental health issues. A lot of the problems with access to mental health care in the area were systemic. And over her decade of advocacy work, she saw that they weren't being addressed properly. So she ran for office. National media expressed shock when Ketchum was elected in a small town in a conservative state. Her victory? It's historic. In addition to being the first in her state, Ketchum is also one of only 27 out trans elected officials in the country while there are an estimated 1.4 million trans people in the United States. For anyone who may be like me, can you just, you know, help dimensionalize a little bit of what, you know, like the community at large Mm -hmm. has to work through? I'm not looking, I mean, if you have them, stats are great, but like, I, you know, I just, I don't have a perfect handle on kind of what it is to kind of row against the current of the world that we live inside of. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's incredibly, you know, cultural, all the implications that we deal with are societal and cultural, especially as trans folks, because, you know, essentially we are betraying the societal expectation of our biological sex. We are saying, we don't feel this way. This isn't the way it works, at least not for us. And, and that's really hard because, I mean, think about the centuries of built up societal expectation that has been affirmed 
for centuries until this last one. Um, you know, although we know trans folks and LGBT folks have existed forever, I mean, you know, some of the first um, uh, kind of identifiers of, of the trans experience exist um, in Native American culture. Uh, we have yet to have a real kind of inflection point uh, in cultural uh, consciousness or awareness. And I think that's happening now in a really powerful way. And so when I was a kid, there, you know, I'm 26 years old, I was born in 93. I, you know, did not have representation available to me in the way that we have now. And it makes, I mean, I feel old even saying it, but the only real introduction to the LGBT community that I had growing up was Will and Grace, which was meant to entertain and not educate. So um, I think for my parents as well, that was their only real uh, familiarity with LGBT culture. And while I love the show, it, it, it wasn't built to kind of, you know, be a masterclass in LGBTQ, you know, uh, lived experience. And I don't even, I can't even think if there was a trans portrayal, you know, in that TV show. Uh, and so nevertheless, I grew up and I, you know, really sought these representations that weren't kind of traumatic and tragic, you know, because the what, thinking back to the representations that I uh, knew most more closely as a kid of trans people, they were, you know, sex workers and, you know, uh, subject to incredible violence and were on the outskirts of, you know, their communities and, and used drugs. And, and while that can be true and it's, uh, you know, a, a horrible pl plight on the LGBT community, that was not the normalized, you know, thing that I think I needed as a <laughs> young trans person. Um, it was a, more frightening than anything. So I hope that now we have more normalized or typified uh, examples of the trans experience. I'm not a celebrity, I'm not a model, I'm not a whatever, you know, I am a normal person doing normal things in a normal little town. Um, and I hate the word normal, I work in mental health, we never use it. But in the context of culture, I think it's really important to see a very, um, you know, uh, a, a very healthy portrayal of the trans experience. And, you know, I, I hope that we can influence our culture enough to make sure that's the, you know, that's the, that's a priority. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I heard you in an interview at one point talk about the distinction between ignorance and bigotry, which I think is such an important thing because uh, one, I think there's just a lot of ignorance, uh, you know, and just kind of like what the experience of someone who's transgender actually is and what it means. Can you just for anyone who's a little less familiar with transgender in general, talk about that difference between the two and how there may be a, a role that anyone who's listening can work against either? Yeah, so I mean, growing up trans, you encounter some of the most awkward experiences maybe ever, you know, especially being trans in rural America. And, you know, I could, I remember, you know, having experiences with people who would ask me about my genitalia on the first, in the, within the first five minutes, or they would, you know, point out my Adam's apple or just some weird, just weird things. And, um, you know, I've gained a lot of confidence over the years. I, you know, I'm no longer an uh, insecure teenager, but I, I sooner or later began to identify and differentiate the people who were doing this on purpose and were unkind and, 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 and hateful in a way. Um, but differentiate that between the people who just did not know and did not have the language 
and were working with an empty toolbox. They had no frame of reference here. And you know, I learned many times over that I was the first person, you know, this individual, first trans person this individual had met. And uh, you know, I tried to uh, you know, come to those situations with grace and diplomacy and patience because uh, the last thing I wanna do is punish curiosity because the second somebody kind of goes out on a limb to ask a question they're uncomfortable with, if we slap their hand, they may never ask that question again, or they may never uh, feel a willingness to learn or understand. I, I understand that I am, for some people, the only trans representation that they see in their town. And I, well, no trans person or LGBT person owes somebody their story or the facts about their personal history or medical history. I, I feel a kind of responsibility to try to be as open as possible for the folks who are, are genuinely curious and ignorant, but want to build that toolbox, want to, want to have the language, you know, at their disposal so that the next time they meet somebody or have to have a conversation at a dinner table, you know, they're prepared to be an ally. I mean, one of, the, one of the questions I had written down was the idea of how important it is to question your values from time to time. And this is an illustration of the importance. It doesn't mean abandon the things that are at the core of who you are or your faith or anything else. But if you are living inside of a construct that was designed by someone else to help you get from one station to the next at one point in time in your life to another, it doesn't mean necessarily that that thing is the thing that is here today for you to continue on your journey. And I, I just, I love it so much. I'm, I, I'm in the midst of a very question everything kind of station in my life because there are so many things that I thought I knew that I'm now wondering if there is still truth inside of the box that I have held onto and that I'm living inside of. And so I am questioning the values that I have in real time, not in a way that dismisses who I am, not in a way that dismisses the core of my essence, but in a way that opens up the possibility of me reaching for something in the curiosity and in the inquisition of what possibly might also be available in my journey as a, as a means to continuing to move forward inside of, again, some uncharted space that I've never actually been in before. Yeah, and the universe is always trying to get us to take that journey. It's always trying to get us to take that journey. But when we don't take that journey voluntarily, things keep coming up in all of our lives to force us to take that journey. And, and that's why if, if you're listening and watching this and you're like, well, I don't really have that many challenges right now, or I don't think I need to question myself right now. And sometimes it can become like that, even as a sharer of this, that you get to a point where you're like, oh yeah, well, basically I understand everything. And, and you know, every time I've, yeah, I've, luckily, thankfully to my teachers, I've, I've never really felt that way. But even if I get close, I have to remind myself that that's not the mindset that's going to help. Like you feeling like, you know, everything. I'm always in every conversation seeking a new truth and a deeper truth, because even if you're not learning new things, you can always learn deeper things. And I think that's something that we mistake that we always feel, oh, this, I've heard this before, but just because you've heard it before doesn't mean you've heard it with the same depth. 
And so we keep looking for new things, not deeper things. And to me, the wisdom's in how deep you can go, not how new you can go. Oh my goodness. I mean, you can hear the same thing from 10 different teachers and the 11th teacher saying it in a very specific way can finally be the way that it lands in a way that actually implants in you and changes the way you think. I am here for it. You're someone who's obviously living their life's purpose very, very well, but there are a lot of people who are listening who still struggle with this elusive hunt for finding their why. I've talked about finding your why as being this convergence between something you're great at, something you have passion for, something that brings light to the world, and something that if you need to can afford financial security for your family. How do you think about a why and, and finding that kind of overlap, whatever those things end up being between what you're great at and what you love, as you might instruct someone who's struggling a little bit with what their why is and how to find their purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wanted to mention something you said on the last part about the 11th person was, uh, I, I saw a post on Instagram stories yesterday. And it was someone had written like this long thing about the book and they were like, you know, I, I, this book is really connected with me, et cetera. And they were like, I feel really bad now because my husband's been telling me everything that's in this book for the last 10 years, but I've only started believing it now. And it was really funny when I read that because I was just like, this is, this is awesome. Like we all need different people to tell us the same thing. Uh, but yeah, talking about purpose. So I'd say that I've like dedicated the last 15 years of my life to really discovering and trying to live my purpose. Like it's been a obsession for me because after living as a monk and coming back into the world, I didn't feel comfortable doing things that didn't feel purposeful. So I almost went through this massive identity issue where I'd gone from being a monk where I was doing what I love every day to then coming back to the world and having to do things I didn't love and things that I didn't understand and things that didn't have meaning in my life. And the first thing I realized was I had to find purpose where I was. And that was a really important lesson before we dive into finding the purpose. I had to focus on finding purpose where I was. So when I came back from living as a monk, I went back into the corporate world because that was what I knew how to do. Like I didn't know any other way to survive from a financial and mental standpoint in the world than the corporate world because that's what I was trained for. And so I went back into the corporate world. And it, by the way, it did not feel like monk life and it didn't feel like service. And I was like, the only way that I will find this to be purposeful is if I feel I'm learning skills that are going to benefit my service in the long term. And I didn't know what my, I didn't know that I was going to do any of this. All I knew is that I wanted to share the messages I'd learned. That's all I knew. And I didn't know I was going to make videos. I didn't know I was going to write a book. I didn't know anything. I just knew I wanted to share these messages that I'd learned. And so I wanted to learn any skills that would help me one day maybe share these messages that I'd learned. So I was excited to learn about how to use PowerPoint. I was excited to learn about um, social media that my company was investing in a lot at the time. So I was learning about social media and I ended up learning digital strategy, which was how do companies launch themselves in a digital way? No idea that I would ever do any of those things, but I just knew that they, these were interesting things. So I made my work purposeful by learning things that I think would be useful. And I think this is a mistake we make. I think a lot of people today forget that to even do your passion in the world, you still need to understand the world. You still need to understand the functions. And I know you know this very strongly because you've brought so much of your corporate experience into your work. And so you've seen the benefits of being someone who's highly organized and a high performer in your life. 
Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.